turn with me, if you would, this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Today I want to do something a bit different than my typical practice. Uh, I want to illustrate a couple of points that we find in the stories of 1 Samuel chapter 18 with a story, a rather long story, a story not from the days of David and Samuel and David and Saul and Jonathan, but an extended story from World War II. But before I tell that story, I want us to read God's Word, but I also want to make another caveat. If you are looking at chapter 18, or maybe you've already read chapter 18 as we have been working our way through 1 Samuel, and if you have, you'll note that the second half, basically, of the chapter, let me put it this way, can be quite delicate. And because of the delicate nature of the second half of this chapter, I'm not going to read all those verses. Uh, but I do want to touch on what's going on. I want us to read verses 1 through probably about 17 or so, and then I want us to drop down to verse 28. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of thousands. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Meribah, and I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Let me drop down now to 
verse 28. We, we move in, in those verses to Saul's daughter Michael, who loved David. Saul's not going to give Michael to David without price. David earns that price. Verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid. So Saul was David's enemy. He came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. World War II. World War II. The 21-year-old American B-17 pilot glanced out of his cockpit and he froze. He blinked, blinked hard, and he looked again, hoping it was a mirage. But his co-pilot stared at the same horrible vision. This is a nightmare, the co-pilot said. He's going to destroy us, the pilot agreed. The men were looking at a gray German Messerschmitt fighter hovering just three feet off their wingtip. It was five days before Christmas 1943. Five or four. And the fighter had closed in on their crippled American B-17. He had, he had closed in for the kill. The B-17 pilot, Charles Brown, was a 21-year-old West Virginia farm boy on his first combat mission. His bomber had been shot to pieces by swarming fighters, and his plane was alone, struggling to stay in the skies above Germany. Half his crew was wounded. The tail gunner was dead, his blood frozen in icicles over the machine gun. But when Brown and his co-pilot, Spencer Pinky Luke, looked at the fighter pilot again, something odd happened. The German didn't pull the trigger. He stared back at the bomber in amazement and respect. Instead of pressing the attack, he nodded at Brown and saluted. And what happened next was one of the most remarkable acts of chivalry recorded during World War II. Charles Brown, you see, was on his first combat mission, first combat mission during World War II, when he met an enemy unlike any other. Revenge, not honor, is what drove 2nd Lieutenant Franz Stigler to jump into his fighter that chilly... December day in 1943. Stigler wasn't just any fighter. Stigler was an ace. One more kill, and he would have been awarded the Knight's Cross, Germans, the Germans' highest honor and award for valor. One more kill. Yet Stigler was driven by something deeper than glory. You see, his older brother, August, was a fellow Luftwaffe pilot who had been killed earlier in the war. American pilots had killed him. American pilots had killed Stigler's 
comrades. American pilots were bombing his country's cities. Stigler was standing near his fighter on that morning on his German airbase when he heard a bomber's engine. Looking up, he saw this B-17 flying so low that it looked like it was going to land. As the bomber disappeared over the trees, behind some trees, Stigler tossed a cigarette aside, saluted the ground crewman, and took off in pursuit. As Stigler's fighter rose to meet the bomber, he decided that he was going to attack from behind. He climbed behind the sputtering bomber. He squinted into his gun sight. He placed his hand on the trigger. He was about to fire, and he hesitated. He was, Stigler was baffled. No one in the bomber was firing at him. He looked closer at the tail gunner. The tail gunner was still. His white fleece collar soaked in blood. Stigler craned his neck to examine the rest of the bomber. Parts of its skin had been peeled away by shells. Its guns had been knocked out. One propeller wasn't turning. Smoke trailed from another engine. He could see men huddled inside the shattered plane, tending the wounds of other crewmen. Then he nudged his plane alongside of the bomber's wing, and he looked into the eyes of the pilot whose eyes were wide with shock and horror. Stigler pressed his hand over the rosary he kept in his flight jacket. He eased his finger off the trigger. He couldn't shoot. It would have been murder. Stigler wasn't just motivated by vengeance that day. Stigler also lived by code. Stigler could trace his family's ancestry back to knights in the 16th century of Germany. He had once studied to enter into the priesthood. But a German who spared the enemy risked death in Nazi Germany. If someone reported Stigler, he would have been executed. Yet also hear the voice of his commanding officer who once told him, you follow the rules of war for you, not your enemy. You fight by rules to keep your humanity. He paused. He did not pull the trigger. If he had pulled the trigger, it would have been murdered. Alone with the crippled bomber, Stigler changed his mission. He nodded at the American pilot and he began flying in formation with the bomber so German anti-aircraft gunners on the ground wouldn't shoot down the slow-moving bomber. You see, the Luftwaffe had shot down B-17s in the past, and many of those B-17s that they shot down, they recovered, they rebuilt, and they used for secret missions and for training. And so Stigler thinks, if I fly beside this B-17, the gunners, German gunners below, will think it's one of ours. 
Stigler escorted the bomber. He escorted the bomber. And he escorted the bomber out over the North Sea. And he took one last look at the American pilot. And he saluted him. And he peeled his fighter away and returned to Germany. And as he's peeling away, he's thinking this and probably saying it. Good luck. You're in God's hands now. Good luck. You're in God's hands now. Franz Stigler didn't think that the B-17 would make it back to England. And he wondered for years what had happened to that American pilot and that crew he had encountered in combat. Now, let's go to Charles Brown. As, as he watched the German fighter peel away, he wasn't thinking of the philosophical connection between enemies. He was thinking of survival. He flew his crippled plane filled with the wounded back to his base in England and he landed with one of his four engines knocked out, one failing, and barely any fuel left. After his bomber comes to a stop, he leans back in his seat and he puts his hand over the pocket Bible that he kept in his flight jacket. And no doubt said all manner of prayers. Brown would go on to fly more missions in the war before the war ended. Life would move on for Brown. He got married. He had two daughters. He supervised foreign aid for the State Department during the Vietnam War. And eventually he retired to Later in life, though, he, the, the encounter with that German pilot would begin to gnaw on him. He started having nightmares. But in his dream, there would be no act of mercy. And he would wake up right before his plane would crash. Again and again and again. And so Brown took on a new mission. He had to find the German pilot. Who was he? Why did he save my life? He scoured the military archives in the U.S. and in England. He attended a pilot's reunion and shared his story. He finally placed an ad in a German newsletter for former Luftwaffe pilots retelling the story and asking if anyone had known the pilot. On January 18, 1990, Brown received a letter. He opened it and it read, Dear Charles, all these years I've wondered what happened to that B-17. Did she make it home? Did her crew survive their wounds? To hear of your survival has filled, we, filled me with indescribable joy. It was Stigler. Stigler had left Germany after the war and he had moved to Vancouver, British Columbia in 1953. Stigler became a prosperous businessman. Now retired, Stigler told Brown that he would be in Florida come summer and it sure would be nice to talk about our encounter. Brown wasn't going to wait. Brown was so excited. He couldn't wait to see Stigler. He couldn't wait to summer. So he called directory assistance. Back in the day when you could do that sort of thing. He called directory assistance. To, to Vancouver and asked, was there a number for Franz Stigler? And lo and behold, there was. And they gave the number to Charles Brown, and Charles Brown 
cause. And Stigler picked up. And Brown says, it's you. And his tears ran down his cheek. But Brown had to do more. He wrote a letter to Stigler in which he said to say thank you, thank you, thank you on behalf of my surviving crew members and their families appears totally inadequate. Well, the two pilots would, we get to meet again. But this time in person, in the lobby of a hotel in Florida. And one of Brown's friends was there to, to record this summer reunion. Both men looked like retired businessmen. They were, they were a little plump and sporting neat ties and formal shirts. And they fell into each other's arms and wept and laughed. They talked about their encounter in a jovial tone, but the mood then changed. Someone asked Stigler what he thought about Brown. Stigler his square jaw tightened. He began to fight back tears before he said in a heavily accented English, I love you, Charlie. Stigler had lost his brother. Stigler had lost his friends. Stigler had lost his country. He was virtually exiled by his countrymen after the war. There had been 28,000 German pilots at the beginning of the war. At the end, 1,200. The war cost him everything. And Charles Brown was the only good thing that came out of World War II for Franz Stigler. It was the one thing he could be proud of. And that meeting helped Brown as well. His older daughter, Dawn Warner, said that it had helped him in an amazing way. They, they had met as enemies, Stigler and Brown. And they ended up as fishing buddies. Brown and Stigler became pals. They'd take fishing trips together. They'd fly cross country to each other's homes and take road trips together to share their stories in schools and in veterans' reunions. Their wives, Jackie Brown and Haya Stigler, became fast friends. Brown's daughter says her father would worry about Stigler's health and would constantly check in on him. And she, she said it was they really did feel for each other. They talked about the week with, with one another. And as his friendship deepened with Stigler, something else happened to her father. Warren says the nightmares went away. The nightmares went away. Brown had written a letter of thanks to Stigler, yes, but one day he showed the extent of his gratitude. He organized, you say, a reunion of his surviving crew members along with their extended families. And he invited Stigler as the guest of honor. And during the reunion, a video played showing all the faces of all the people that now lived. Children, grandchildren, and relatives because of Stigler's act of chivalry. Stigler watched the film from his seat of honor. 
everybody was crying, not just Stigler. Stigler and Brown died within months of each other in 2008. Stigler was 92. Brown was 87. They had started off as enemies. They became friends. And then something more. After he died, Warner, the daughter of Brown, was searching through his, her father's library. And when she came across a book on German fighter jets, she took note. Stigler had, had given the book to Brown. You say both were country boys who loved to read about airplanes. Warner opened the book and saw an inscription that Stigler had written in it to Brown. Quote, in 1940, I lost my only brother as a night fighter. On the 20th of December, days before Christmas, I had a chance to save a B-17 from her destruction. A plane so badly damaged, it was a wonder that she was still flying. The pilot, Charlie Brown, is for me as precious as my brother was. Thanks, Charlie. Your brother, Franz. Two points. I'll be brief. There's a minor point in our text in 1 Samuel 18. And that minor point is the commendable, highly commendable and loving friendship between Jonathan and David. And in the story of Stigler and Brown, we see something of the strong bond that can be formed between two men. A bond of sacrifice. A bond of risk. A bond, yes, of grace. A bond that many in our perverted world would want to twist. But let's not twist it. Let's see it. Let's be encouraged by it. Stickler was willing to risk his own life, mysteriously at the time, for the life of Brown and his crew. Jonathan, whether you see it here or not, is willing to risk his own life from his father's hands out of his love for David. Jonathan, whether you recognize it or not, was transferring, very, very symbolically transferring, his crown rights to David when he removed his robe and removed his armor and gave his sword to David. Brothers and sisters, that's a mysterious powerful love. And it's a love that's born out of faith. It has to be born out of faith. It has to be born out of faith. A faith that is willing to make one's self the lesser. And that was Jonathan. And brothers and sisters, that was Stickler. Willing to make 
one's self the lesser. In my mind, when I think that, it races to the New Testament. It races to John the Baptist. It races to John the Baptist's love for his cousin Jesus. It races to John the Baptist's words. He must increase, but I must decrease. Dear ones, that's a noble love. It challenges me. Is that the way Lee loves? Is that the way Lee loves you? Is that the way you love me? Is that the way we love one another? And supremely, is that the way we love the Lord Jesus Christ? But there's something more in the story about Stigler and Brown that brings me back to this text. Remember when Stigler said, when he peeled off over the North Sea, good luck, you're in God's hands now. I want to say, Franz, I know what you meant, but you were wrong. You were wrong. Brown was in God's hands when you didn't pull that trigger. Brown was in God's hands when you jumped into your airplane. Brown was spared because God is merciful. Brown was in God's hands and Stigler, so were you. The point that the author of the book of Samuel is making in chapter 18, he's, he's, he's shouting it at us. It's, it's pretty straightforward, it's pretty simple. David was successful because God loved him. David was successful because God was with him. David was successful because he was in God's hands. Verse 5, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. Verse 14, and David had success in all of his undertakings. Verse 30, then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. David was successful, but why? It was in God's hands. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. Verse 14, and David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And verse 28, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Success, success, success. Why? Because the Lord was with him. Because the Lord was with him. Because the Lord was with him. He was in God's hands. He was in God's hands. He was in God's hands. But that again makes my mind race forward to the New Testament. Not to David, but to the Son of David. To the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it, as Pastor Jim earlier when we were in our time of confession, that our God is holy. How is it that the holy God of the universe could be with 
David, no matter how noble David was, David was a sinner. And we're going to see that in David's life story, are we not? How could it be that a holy God would be with a sinner such as David and be with him and be with him and be with him? How could it be? Because he would place the sins of David upon the son of David. How could it be that he was with David? Because he would turn his back, the father would turn his back on his son, the son of David, who would cry out on the old rugged cross in that moment of hell, in that moment of torment, in that moment of wrath, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How could he be with David? Because he turned his back. He would turn his back on his very only begotten son. The Lord was with David because the Father would turn His back on His Son Jesus as Jesus bore the punishment for David's sin. And guess what, dear ones? The Lord is with you too if your trust is in this very same Son of David. Now, you're in God's hands now. You're in God's hands now. The Lord with you if your faith is in Jesus Christ. What better place to be? And when you look out the window and at your wingtip, there's the enemy. No that the Lord is with you. And that the Lord can turn enemies into what? Brothers. I don't know what you're looking out on. I don't know what is weighing you down, all of you. But as it weighs you down, as you look out in fear, remember, God is with you. You're in His hands now. And as wonderful as that reunion was between Stickler and Brown, your reunion with Jesus Christ on that great and coming day, it's going to, it's going to be, I don't know, my words are insufficient. Glorious, loving, gracious, beautiful, perfect, everlasting. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the Apostle Paul asked, if God is for us, who can be against us? You were for David. 
Saul's spear couldn't pin him to the wall. You were with David, and the Philistines could not strike him down. But you're also with us. And no matter what comes, enable us to see that we are in your sovereign and loving and powerful care. And wherever you should take us, help us always to rest in the knowledge that you're faithful, that you're merciful, and that we are under your wings. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.